It is good to be here. Take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. <clears throat> and chapter 47. Before I get started, I'll tell you a little about this. Um, several years ago, I was walking the streets of Old Rangoon, and uh, I would meet a Burmese monk one after another. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, I, would, I had just learned some of the language. And so Burmese monk, red robe, bald head, coming down the, the walkway in the middle of downtown Yangon, old Rangoon. And anyway, he would, I, I would, our eyes would meet, and I'd say, Mingalaba, and he'd look away and keep walking. And uh, another one come, I'd say, Mingalaba, he'd keep walking, look away. And uh, finally, uh, a Buddhist monk, look, I, I, our eyes met, and I said, Mingalaba, Nikamla, hello, how are you? And he stopped dead in his tracks, and he said, how you know my language? I said, how you know mine? <laughs> and uh, so he... Uh, sat down on a city street bench there with me, and we got to talking. He had many questions about me coming from America. And so I had this little shoulder bag over my, Burmese shoulder bag over my shoulder, and I took out of that sack a Burmese Judson translation Bible. And his slanted eyes got great big round, and he said, for me? And I said, yes, please. And uh, he received that with thanksgiving. And uh, then he disappeared down the street with that Bible. And I thought, well, I'll never hear from him again. Well, that monk, I did not know that he was a high priest, Buddhist high priest, in charge of one of the biggest monasteries in the city of Yangon. And he took that back to his monastery. And in the secrecy of his room, his quarters every night, he read that Bible. And he said, I was amazed. He said, this book tells how the world began. And he said, he said, as I read this book, it seemed like every time I read the Bible, I got a, a little light and then a little more light and a little more light until I realized that this Jesus Christ in that book was the Messiah, the Savior that Gautama said would come 600 years B.C. And he said, I got down on my knees, I confessed my sin, and I believed on Christ, and I asked him to come into my heart and become my Savior. And he said, I began to witness to the other monks, and now they were beating me beating me with their fists and steel rods. And he said, so I fled, and they were trying to kill me. And so he called one of our pastors. I had given him my card, and on the card was one of our pastor's numbers there in Yangon. Long story short, <coughs> he graduated from our Bible college. He is now in the midst of starting his third local church, He's winning many of his own people to Christ. And so several years ago, I took his testimony and wrote this gospel track, A Monk Tells How He Found True Enlightenment. And it's a large gospel track. And this is the English version. 
we printed in the, we printed the Burmese version in Yangon. We printed about 40,000 of them several years ago. Had thousands of professions of faith off of this track. And uh, so they were gone almost overnight. And so Micah McCurry of Bible Tracks Incorporated, friend of mine out in Illinois, he recently, uh, uh, this year, much earlier this year, he called me and he said, we want to help you and print some tracks for Burma. I said, well, praise the Lord. He said, well, which one do you want to print? I said, well, I'll let you know. So I called my men over in, over in Burma and I said, which track would you let? They want to print millions. They said, excuse me, sir? I said, not, not 10,000, not 40,000, not 100,000. They want to print millions of tracks for us. And of course, Micah said, we're going to print them there in Illinois and ship them over there. I said, why? I said, we can print them in Yangon, in the, inside the country over there, and save the shipping and the customs and all of that. And he said, can we get the quality? Well, this is the quality. And so we, I went to Illinois while I was preaching out there uh, in Illinois. We redesigned this into a 16-page, full-color, glossy booklet. The Buddhists love booklets. They love to study. And all of the pictures in this are mine that I've taken, and they're all from different parts of the country, so people will identify. And uh, lots and lots of Scripture. Uh, someone has said that there's more Scripture in this Gospel tract than any other tract that's ever been written or printed in America. And so we, this is a $175,000 project. Can I say that again? Somebody gulp. This is a $175,000 project. Well, we've already got $150,000. So we're on our way. We're going to print $4 million. And we have the manpower within GLBM. We have the manpower to distribute this all over Old Burma. A country, I told in Sunday school, country of uh, 56 million, 156 people groups or individual tribes, 203 languages, and uh, the hub of the wheel physically bordered by five countries surrounded by 12, the hub of the wheel in Southeast Asia. And so we believe that these are going to go not only across Myanmar, but across, all across Southeast Asia and maybe even into China. And uh, we want to, we're, we're actively starting to print these in a couple of Indian languages across the border in India, as well as Chinese and Thai. And uh, so this is a big deal. Somebody say amen right there. And uh, so we're real excited about that. And uh, a pastor, Elder Delroy, just sent me a check for $5,000. That's, now we have 155000 and I received that yesterday. And uh, so, anyway, God has been real good to me and my wife and our church and our mission. And uh, it's one of the, the, the greatest thing in the entire world and all of life is not getting a Corvette. It's serving Christ. Amen. The greatest thing in all of life. Amen. You say, well, I thought it was my grandkids. Well, I hope that they're serving Christ. I hope that they will. 
But honestly, the greatest thing in my whole life is serving the Lord and what he's done and seeing people come to Jesus Christ is the greatest thing. Ezekiel chapter 47, I'm going to read the first nine verses, if you will. Would you stand with me in respect, honor to God's holy word? I'm going to try to paint a picture for us this morning. And I want you to see that picture, that, this photograph out of the Old Testament. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 47, and if you're not looking on a Bible with someone, or if you don't have a Bible, please look on with, along with someone. But Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, the Bible says, Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Verse 2. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without, or outside, unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. Verse 3. And when the man that had the line in his hand, I believe that that is Jesus Christ. When the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were to the loins or the waist. Afterward, he measured a thousand or 1,500 cubits. And, uh, or 1,500 feet rather. Afterward, he measured a thousand cubits. And it was a river that I could not pass over. For the waters were risen Waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. Verse 6. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river, or where the waters originate or come from. Verse 7. And when I had returned, Behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, Whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And now together with me, please out loud, everyone, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. Again, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. Let me pray, please. My Father, though my heart, I want to be a blessing. Now I pray, Father, that I would be a blessing to you first. Now I pray, Father, that you'll honor your word. God, that you will speak to our hearts. 
that you'll have your way in our lives. If there's even one here in this place who does not know Christ and does not have eternal life, may it be this morning, may it be this day that they would find new life in Him. And I pray, Father, that you'll fill me with your power, the power of the Holy Spirit of God as I open this book, as I preach. I pray, Father, that you would help us, give us ears to hear, I pray, in Jesus' name and just for His sake. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. I want to paint a picture for you, and I want you to see it. The book of Ezekiel is all about visions, six visions to be exact. And they are built, these six visions are built around three different major themes. Number one, in verses 1 through 24, the, the theme is the judgment on Israel or God's people. And let me stop right there and say, God will judge his people. And we are his people. And God is even now judging America. And yet he is saving souls in America. And I'm thankful that God does keep his word. So in, in verses 25 through 32, we find the second major theme and that is judgment not only on Israel, but judgment on the nations of which we are a part. And then thirdly, in verses 33 through the end of the book, the future blessings for Israel. Because there is a restoration. There is the judgment of God. There is the Bible that's true and we will stand accountable and responsible to God for what we've done and how we've lived and what we've received and what we've done with what we've received. But even when we sin against God, thank God there's restoration. Thank God there's forgiveness. Somebody asked me, what are you most thankful for? Are you most thankful for the mercy of God? Yes, I'm thankful for the mercy of God. Are you most thankful for heaven? I'm thankful for heaven. Are you thankful for the word of God? I'm thankful for, my, for the word of God. I'm thankful for my church. Most of all, I'm thankful for forgiveness. Just the fact that God has forgiven me. And so, in the book of Ezekiel, the themes in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet teaches us about, number one, the presence of God. And then he teaches us, secondly, about this thing called purity. God likes things that are clean. And then number three, he, he teaches us about Israel as a divine community or being God's people. And lastly, he teaches us the, our individual responsibility before God. We are not just responsible to God as a nation. We are not just responsible to God as a family. We're not just responsible to God as a church. We're responsible to God and we will be responsible one-on-one, -on -one, eyeball to eyeball with our creator God someday. So in chapters 40 through 44 of the book of Ezekiel, God shows the prophet some things. Two things particularly he shows them, number one, the city of God. Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to go. Can't wait to live there. Going to live there. Going to be there. It's real. My mom is already there. Number two, Ezekiel shows 
the house, or God shows Ezekiel the house of God. Not only the city of God, but he shows them the house of God. And that's primarily what Ezekiel 47 is all about. History records that there has never been a greater temple than that of King Solomon. It was amazing. But Ezekiel describes a temple that has never yet been built, but it will. It's going to be built. Ezekiel describes his temple as multi-level. And then he describes, his, he, he describes how the walls are paneled with wood. He describes the gateways, the outer and the inner courts, side chambers and vestibules, archways, doors and windows. He describes the sanctuary and the altar, uh, how it's decorated with cherubims and palm trees carved on the walls and on the doors. Can you imagine? This is ornate. This is the way God does things. He does things well. He does things good. He does things fine. Make no mistake. The, he describes the purposes of the side chambers in this temple, that they are for the robing of the priests, for the consumption of the meat of the sacrifices of the priests, for the singers. The dimensions are given all in cubits. Now, in America, especially among us Baptist people, we don't usually have a great understanding about temples. You know, We're a, this, we, we have church. And, and some people call this an auditorium, but I like to think of it as a sanctuary. It's where I come to meet with God. Now, I can meet with God at my bedside or in my car, but I like to come to the sanctuary of the Lord. This is his house. And uh, so um, he describes how uh, in this book this, this, the, the temple is. And... In America, we don't really have a great understanding about temples. The, the Burmese people do. They have temples everywhere. I mean, the landscape is peppered with temples. When my wife went there, she saw one pagoda Buddhist temple after another. They're shaped like great big huge Hershey kisses, but they're not chocolate, they're gold. And I mean, the gold is real. These people are starving to death. They, they, they are eating one meal a day. They are begging for their food. But they're putting real pressed gold on these temples. And some of these temples are hundreds of feet. Sri Dagon Pagoda in Yangon, which is like the Mecca of Buddhism worldwide, is 380 feet high. It's all gold, real gold. They're putting gold on it three times a year, every year. And then at the top, there's an umbrella that's made out of 18,000 carats of of sapphires and diamonds, and there is a 30, no, a 67 carat ruby, real ruby at the top of this temple in downtown Yangon. And so they understand about temples. Here in this country, the Mormons understand about temples. You go out to Salt Lake City, there's this mammoth temple. I kind of think these temples are a little spooky myself. You go to these great big huge cathedrals. How many used to be Catholic? Or how many they may, may, might still have Catholics here today? But some of the Episcopal churches have these great big huge burgundy or red doors. You know, they're real big, real high with these great big. And you, you kind of open, open these things up. It's kind of like visiting the wizard. 
you know? When you go in and people think the churches are spooky. Well, if you saw some of the temples uh, around uh, this world, you'd think they were spooky too. Um, you go down to Baltimore, Maryland, and you're coming down the interstate, and as you, as, you, as you clear the horizon, you begin to see a steeple or a, or a, a, a spire, and it, it gets bigger and bigger, and as you get closer and closer, you realize this thing is mammoth. This is as big as an aircraft carrier. It's bigger than the Empire State Building, and it's just, it, it's, it's ridiculous big. It's awe-inspiring. You know what it is? It's a, it's a Mormon temple on the East Coast, and it's ornate, and you go in there, and there's statues, and there's images, and all kinds of stuff, and I always thought those kinds of things were a little spooky, but God's temple, God's house is not spooky. It's not to be it's, it's not supposed to be fearful. It's supposed to be welcoming, and so I Ezekiel is attempting in this chapter to describe this temple that's going to be built. Now, Solomon, King Solomon's temple had, listen now, Solomon's temple had water running out of it. I'm sorry, Solomon's temple had water running into it. For the washing and the cleansing up of the sacrifices and the priests and all those things. It had water. They had a whole system of, of aqueducts and pipery that was running the water into Solomon's temple. Ezekiel's temple, here in Ezekiel 47, has water running out of it. And those waters are described by, number one, their origin or where they spring from, the progress and increase of those waters, uh, the healing nature of those waters, the places where those waters go a healing, the fruit trees which grow on the banks of the river. Now, I believe Ezekiel's temple, or the house of God, is a picture of three things in the Scriptures. Number one, I believe it's a picture it's a painting, if you will, of the literal temple which will be built during the millennial reign of Christ. And in that time, the waters that flow from the temple will quicken the waters and bring forth life again. And I believe that the Dead Sea, it's painting a picture of the Dead Sea and the waters in the Dead Sea will all of a sudden come alive from the temple, the water will, will, will leave the temple and the Dead Sea, there'll be fish, there'll be so many fish, the water will completely change and it'll be a miracle of God. But number two, I believe that the Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47 is a picture of the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. We don't have water running. The Bible says that he that believeth on me... Out of his belly shall flow rivers of what? Say it. Living water. Living water. Make things alive. And so the church is going to have water running out of it. I'm thankful that we are members of a church in Horseheads, New York, that water, the living water of God is running out of our church. How is it running out of the church? We have we have Sunday school classes, and we are, 
water, if you will, watering them kids. And uh, some of them do need water and soap. And our bus ministry is going into the highways and byways and compelling people to come in and fill up our Sunday school classes and fill up our sanctuary. And we are talking about Jesus and we're leading people to the Lord. And living water is flowing out of my church. And living water is flowing not only into our community from our church, it's flowing around the world. Literally, the sun never sets on the influence of the gospel message that comes from the Lighthouse Baptist Church in Horseheads, New York. And I pray, I hope that it's the same way with Freedom Baptist Church here. So it's a picture. Solomon's temple is a picture of the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, I think it's a picture of the individual believer. As we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God and, and, and the literal home or house of our Savior. And I already discussed about the living water. Now, can you get this? When John baptized Jesus Christ in the River Jordan, it was literally the water of life in the water with John. Say again. When John baptized Jesus Christ, it was literally the water of life in the water with the Apostle John. Now you may ask, what is this all about? Well, get the picture. Get the picture. Christ, the man with the line in his hand. Christ brings Ezekiel to the house. He shows him where the waters come from. He measures 1,500 feet or 1,000 cubits. He doesn't make Ezekiel pass through the waters. Christ brings him through the waters himself. And the waters is to the ankles. Then Christ measures again. And the water is to the knees. Again, the water is to the loins. Again, it is a river. He looks again. The, river, it's, it, the water has become a river, a raging, beautiful, raging, uh, 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 rolling river. Trees are on both sides of the river. There's fruit growing. The waters go where there is death. But wherever the waters go, there is healing and there is life. Now, here's what it's all about. The farther the gospel goes, the deeper the water becomes and the more people believe on Christ. The more people live. Everything shall live whither the river cometh. Now I'm not telling you that everyone who hears the gospel, believes, and gets saved, people reject Jesus every day. Sure do. It's an awful thing. I've known for a long time that people are not going to get saved until they, they're not going to believe in Jesus until they need him. They just don't know that they need him. We need Jesus Christ. 
You may be here this morning and you may have never bowed your head and bowed your soul and believed on Christ and invited him, asked him to forgive you and to become your savior. And if that is you, you need him. You need him desperately this morning. If I were you, I would not leave my pew. I would not leave this room. I would not leave the parking lot. I would not go down into town. I would not get in my car. I would not go. I would not. I would not. I would not pass go. I would not collect $200 before I got saved. Because you are in danger of hellfire every moment you breathe without Jesus Christ. You say, I don't like that. I don't care. That's Bible. That is Bible. And so, what's it all about? It's about the fact that God has prepared a tool, a way to take the gospel around the world. And people say the Great Commission seems so overwhelming. God has a way to do it. God has a way to make it work. It's called the local church. It's called believers. It's called you and me. And some are called to go and some are called to pray and some are, go, or some are, are uh, you know, uh, we have people that from our church who have gone and are still gone and, are, and have, they've, they've went and they're staying. And I think myself, I think that missionaries don't stay long enough. Like an American pastor usually doesn't stay long enough. And they didn't say amen to that preacher. I'm not sure they want you to stay. But as an American pastor needs to stay, I think missionaries need to stay. And so, but anyway, God has, has ordained a plan to reach this world, the entire world. The problem is, we've not done it yet. But I have a message of life. I have the formula. I have the, I have the water. I have the gospel. And it works. Everything shall live whither the river cometh. Now, I said, I said the farther the gospel goes the deeper the water becomes. That's the picture here in Ezekiel chapter 47. So I left here and I went to the other side of the planet and I had no idea. Had no idea. I did not know what I was getting into. I did not know about that people. I didn't know their history. I didn't know their culture. I didn't know their customs. I didn't know their language. I didn't really, I really didn't know about Buddhism. You say, Buddhism? Yeah, the whole country, there's a growing Muslim population, but mostly that country, 97, 98% of the country is Buddhist. They believe in reincarnation. They believe, even though they don't believe in the God or even a God, they believe that they're becoming gods. Figure that one out. And uh, so I went over there and I was naive and this and that, but I went, you know why I went? Because I was obeying God. That's the only reason why I went. I just went to obey God. 
And that's exactly what you and I need to do is just obey God. And with the understanding that as we obey God, God is going to make his plan work. And so I didn't think, you know, I had no plan. I get over to Burma and is the same message and the same Bible and the same gospel going to work there that works here? I mean, do I preach it the same? I guess so. But I've preached in a lot of churches. I've preached on the street. I've preached in youth detention centers. I've preached in children's homes. I've preached in a lot of different foreign countries, never Asia. But I got over there in a strange land with strange customs and people I didn't know. And you know what I found out? Was that the water of the gospel seemed to be deeper over there than it was here. You say, what are you talking about? I am so tired of going into churches where people are satisfied with ankle-deep Christianity. That's what I'm talking about. Ankle deep. And they like it like that. They don't want to swim. They don't want to wade. They just like it right there. Oh, I like it around a little, you know, around my ankles. It's okay, you know. But I don't want to learn to swim. You say you're being silly. I'm being silly, but it's the truth. We're satisfied with far too little. And we've had a lot more in America in years gone by than we have these days today. Yes or no? Do you know what I'm talking about? We need revival and we need it now and we need it bad. And if it doesn't start with the church, we're not going to have it. You can't sit smugly in our pews Sunday after Sunday, can't hardly preach or can't hardly get a grunt of an amen out of nobody. We come and we give our little tithe and we haven't passed out a track. We haven't led anybody to Christ. We haven't really even prayed or read our Bible consistently for years. But we're Christians and we know what we've got, but we really don't appreciate it too much anymore. We don't think about it because we take it for granted. It's the truth. Go like this, it'll help your neck. You know? But when I go to Burma, when I go over there, they don't go to church. They live for church. I go over there, and after an hour and, an hour and a half, I, I close my Bible, and they say, is that all you got? Three hours goes by, and then four hours, and they're still sitting there like dry sponges trying to get more water. To be honest with you, I don't have much left. I got to go refuel because I've been used to being in America where it's ankle deep and people are satisfied with a little dab will do your Christianity. It's the truth. But everything shall live whither the river cometh. The farther the gospel goes, the deeper it becomes. I 
when I first started going to Burma, Myanmar, I had this uncanny desire to go to Moan State. M-O-N, Moan State. It's in the southeast area of old Burma, down towards the Thailand border. And I asked about it. And one of the pastors said, matter of fact, several of them said, they said, Baji, you can never go to Moan State. I said, oh, why? They say, the Buddhism is so strong, if they don't kill you for preaching the gospel, they will stone you or beat you with steel rods and expel you from their land. I said, I think I still want to go. They said, you're crazy. I said, I'm going to pray about it. So I began to pray about Moan State. About a year later, I was out in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was preaching in a church in downtown Des Moines. And a, uh, at the end of the service, a brown-skinned man, slanted eyes, came up to me. And he introduced himself. He says, I am Cho Wong. I said, oh, nice to meet you. He said, oh, you speak my language. I said, much of it. I said, uh, your pastor told me that you are a great soul winner. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, your pastor told me that you have been to Bible college. He said, yes. I said, your pastor told me that you know more scripture than he does. He says, I don't know. I said, why are you here? He said, my dream to come to America. He said, my family and I fled the, the, the Burmese military where they were killing people every day. He said, we went to Thailand. We lived in a refugee camp. I started a church in the refugee camp, when many to Christ. Then government, American government come and they say, here's green card, you go to America. So we come here, we've been here five years. He said, now I'm working with this church here in Des Moines. And he said, I have a Bible study in my apartment with Burmese people coming. And he said, we lead people to Christ in the park. And I said, oh, praise the Lord. I said, but why are you here? He said, my dream come America. I said, you should go home and preach the gospel to your own people. He told me, he said, Baji, I am not Burmese. I said, oh. He said, I am smaller tribe. I said, which one? He said, I am from the Pao tribe. P-A-O, Pao tribe. It's one of the most, one of the smallest tribes in all of Myanmar. And he told me, he said, Baji, I am the first convert in my entire people group, to ever believe on Christ. I said, you should go home and preach the gospel to your own people. He said, no, I want to go out to California and go to Paul Chapel School. I said, oh, hobby, hobby, hobby. Okay, okay, okay. Two years later, I'm in, I think, in North Carolina. I'm preaching. After the service, my phone rings, and it's Chochowong in Des Moines, Iowa. He's weeping, and he says, Baji, I have to go home and preach the gospel to my own people. I said, I know. He said, will you help me? I said, yes. So I caught a plane, you remember. And I flew out to Des Moines, Iowa, rented a U-Haul truck, moved Cho Chowong and his wife, Sese, or Ruth, 
and her three children, two, boy, two girls and a boy, back to upstate New York here to Horseheads. His, and they got their citizenship papers. Cho Cho Wong picked the name Peter David Judson. His wife became Ruth. Their children, Sarah, Charity, and Joshua. And when everything was right, it took us two years to get all their paperwork filed. Finally, the day came and we sent them, we got ready to send them back to, to, to Myanmar. And as I was driving him to the airport, I said, I said, Cho Cho, where will you go? He says, oh, I thought I told you. He said, I will go to the city of Mulmiang. I said, that's Moan State. That's Moan State. He said, yes, it's Moan State. I said, I've been praying. I said, when you get there, I will come. He said, okay, okay, okay. So he went in, in 10 days, 10 days of being on the ground in old Burma. He had led a dozen Buddhists to Christ and had already charted his church. Our church got together and bought property for his new building. Now we have another American family over there and they are helping as well and on and on and on. So I go over and I visit Cho Cho Wong and his family in the city of Mulmiang. I, I drive right into Moan State like I own the place. And I go into their church and I'm, I'm thinking, I am so grateful to be here. So I preach for Cho Cho Wong and his new, his new church and their temporary rough built facility on this property. And then we go soul winning. And I'm walking down the street. And I'm walking up the hill and down in the distance. I see these, these, a group of young ladies. And they are beautiful. They have these, these uh, ankle length, incredibly beautiful, brightly colored uh, full length dresses. And they have these brightly colored parasols to keep the sun off of them. And they're walking down the hill, down this boulevard. And as we approach each other, they're staring at me. I'm staring at them. And I, I say, Mingalaba. And they say, how you know my language? I say, how you know mine? And they, they, they stop. They said, where are you from? I said, America, USA. They said, oh, we want to learn English. I said, well, that's, that's, you can do so. You can do that. You can learn English. They said, we go to English school. Come, come, come. Please come to our English school. So I followed them all the way to their, class, to their English. It's an NGO school with 90 students. And I walk in there, and the administrator, the first thing he said to me, he said, speak. He said, speak for us. Will you speak to the whole, to the whole school, to the, to the student body? I said, Shide, Shide, yes. And so now I am giving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to 90 young people, uh, college-age young people in this NGO uh, school there in Molomian, in the middle of, in the queen city of Moan State. And so I come back to America. God has answered my prayer, right? End of the story, right? No, the water gets deeper, folks. So I'm back in America, and I get a message over the internet from a young lady, and she says, my name is Sakawa, Sakawa Moon, and she said, I am part of that, I'm a student at that English school, but I was not there that day, and one of the young ladies, at the, one of the other students gave me your card, 
and I have taken this home to my family in another village, and my family wants you to come. Will you come and visit us in our home? I typed back, I said, where, where does your family live? They said, we live in the village of Mudon. I said, that's another hour and a half south, deeper in Damon State than the city of Molmiang. They said, she said, yes. So on my next trip, I took a plane from Old Rangoon to Molmian, landed at the airport. Some of the, I didn't know this girl had six other sisters and a brother. She and all of her siblings met me at that airport, and Chochawong met me there, and he says, where will you go? I said, I want to go straight to Mudon. So we didn't pass gold. We didn't collect $200. We went straight an hour and a half further down south into the city of Mudon, had to get out of the van with the girls and her brother, and, and walk another like three miles to their house. And now sitting there in their house, and the father says to me, Baji, why you come to Myanmar? I said, I'm so glad you asked. And I said, I want to take my Bible, and I want to tell you why I come to Myanmar. Long story short, that father and that mother and those six sisters and that brother and two aunts and a cousin across the street all bowed their head and bowed their soul and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repented of their sin and turned from their idols to a living Savior. Amen. Now stay right there. Parentheses. Go back with me now in time. It is the year 1946. It is one month. It is 30 days until Hiroshima. The Japanese have come to Burma. They have invaded the land. They are trying to keep the allies from supplying Chiang Kai-shek in western China. And the, the allies have built the Burma Road and the Lido Road and the Japs have built the Death Railway, the link between Rangoon and Bangkok. And the Japs have come to, the, to this hub of the wheel country in Southeast Asia and they're making this clockwise sweep through the country. And, but while they, are, while they are terrorizing the country, with all of their soldiers and weapons, the Indian Gurkhas and the West Africans who are allied together are coming across the Chin State Mountains from Manipur and Mizoram State. And over across the Bay of Bengal, the Allied forces, the Americans and the Brits and the Australians are coming across the Bay of Bengal and converging on Yangon. And, they, and now they have the Japanese bottled up in the Pegu Forest, right just north of Moan State. And the paratroopers are coming in, and they're landing in the villages, and the Kempatai, the Japanese secret police, they are, they are sending their armies into these remote villages and threatening the people, if you hide, if you help these paratroopers, we will kill you. And so the Kempatai orders the general to take his army to the village of Kalagong. 
and they interrogate the people for days on end and they're looking for the paratroopers that these people are holding and hiding but they're not hiding anybody. They don't know what the Japanese are talking about. Nevertheless, the Japanese bayonet 697 men and women and boys and girls and infants and throw their bodies in area wells. It's called in the history books the Caligong Massacre. There's a young man and he has been torn from his home and his family he has been forced to work for the Japanese. He has been, he's now being used as slave labor. And this man has been sent to one place after another, but now he's working on the death railway, the link between Yangon and Bangkok. They, are, they want a railway for supplies and for prisoners of war. Thousands died. Thousands died. I mean, they died of malaria and typhoid fever and Japanese encephalitis and snake bite and insect bite, lack of, flu, lack of food and the extreme temperatures and humidity, disease everywhere. And this young man, somehow, he has been working on this death railway. Every time they get it, going the allied bombers come and destroy it and the japanese set these prisoners out to build it again finally the third time is destroyed and this young man his name is abutail a then b o e and then t h i a l abutail has been released from the death railway they've given up now they're going to, now Abu Tal is on his way home. He doesn't have a car. There's no train. He must walk. And as he approaches the village of Kalagong, the stench of the rotting bodies in the area wells is overwhelming. Somehow he moves past all of that and down through the city of Molmiang, and now down to his village. And now he's sitting on his front porch of his meager home, and his Buddhist monk is sitting next to him. He's like his pastor. Red-robed, saffron-robed Buddhist monk with a bald head, smoking a cigar. And... Abu Tal sits next to him and the Japanese soldiers marching down the street in front of Abu Tal's house with their, with their rifles on their shoulders and their shining swords on their hip in perfect cadence as they walk by his house. And when they're all gone, Abu Tal turns to his monk and he says, troubled times, no. The monk says, it's awful. The monk says, did you hear about Kalagong? He says, I not only heard about it, Abu Tal says, I smelled it, I saw it. It's the worst thing ever. The monk says, maybe we will be next. Abu Tal says, maybe Matreya will come. Maybe Matreya will come. The monk says, not many people believe that anymore. Abu Tal says, why? 
so long. Abutal says, I will still believe. Gautama said 600 years B.C., a Savior, a Messiah will come. He said in the Buddhist scriptures, I cannot help you, but there is one coming after me who will help you, and his name will be Maitreya, Messiah, Savior. I will still believe. Fast forward. 73 years. And I'm sitting in this family's meager home in the village of Mudon. And the sisters are gathering around and they're looking at my Bible and seeing how I write in some of the pages and how I've highlighted some verses that I want to remember. And they're asking me many questions. And the second to the youngest sister, her name is Kaintitsa. K-H-I-N-E-H-T-I-T-S-A-R. Kaintitsa. I gave her nickname. I call her Kinney. K-H-I-N-N-Y. And 10 minutes after Kinney receives Jesus Christ as her Savior, she grabs me by the arm and she says, Baji, do you want to meet a 112-year-old man? Do you want to meet a 112-year-old man? I said, that's amazing. 112 years old, I've never met anybody like that. I said, where does he live? She says, down the street. He's the most respected man in our village. I said, I guess so. Kenny says, Baji, do you want to meet him? I said, Kenny, why do you want me to meet this 112-year-old man? She's been saved 10 minutes. She says, the tears fill her eyes and runs down her cheek. And she says, does he not need a savior also? Yes. Yes. So it's August. It's rainy season. The monsoon rains have come. We had a five or 10 minute break, but now the horizontal rains with all the wind, it's just pouring cats and dogs in kitchen sinks. And I'm out there with an umbrella and trying to keep her and some of her sisters dry. I'm getting soaked to the skin. It's useless. The wind collapses the umbrella. We are going down the street in mud that has suction. I mean, up to our knees, the mud in the middle of the street, four blocks, now five, almost seven blocks. And finally, Kenny says, it is this house, Baji. We take our shoes off. We climb up the bamboo little rungs, the little steps. We leave our shoes down below. We climb up into this house. The family helps this old man into a chair. And they introduce me and they say, Baji, this is Abu Tail. And I say, Sir, I have come to you to tell you about the one and only true God who created this world, and he sent me to tell you about him and he sent me to you with a book this is his book and I begin to tell him about 
how we are sinners and that we need a Savior. And I begin to tell him how he can put his faith and his trust if he will confess his sin and bow his head with me and put all of his faith and trust if he'll turn from his idols and repent of all of that nonsense and come to a living Savior. He will be set free from his sin and have heaven, eternal life and joy and peace. And he stops me dead in my tracks. And he says, this, this is the one that Godemus said would come. No, no. He said, this is the one. I said, yes. He said, I have waited my whole life. I have waited my whole life to hear about this Savior. I believe in this Savior. I put my trust in this Savior. He said, I believe. He said, tell me what I must do. And there in that simple home, that 112-year-old man, I have a picture of him in my phone, bowed his head and bowed his soul and trusted in Jesus Christ and turned from his idols and his statues and his gold and all that stuff to faith in the Jesus that changed me and you. And four months later, at 113 years old, he went to be with Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, everything shall live whither the river cometh. So don't let it stay here around your ankles. Would you please let it flow? Not just to Burma, but across the street and downtown and at work to your grandchildren. Make it real. through your life, through your word. Because trust me, everything, everything shall live whither the river cometh. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Preacher, you come. What are you going to do with that, folks? We ought to do something, shouldn't we? Whether whether the music's playing or not, God's got a hold of your heart. Maybe you're here this this morning and you do not know for sure that if you die today, that you go to heaven. You don't have that absolute assurance. We'd love to show you today how you can know that for sure.